Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, you're listening to episode 172, and I'm talking with Brad Stolberg. Brad is the author of the new book, The Pasha Paradox, which you heard Shalane Flanagan talk about in this podcast. She's the one who recommended the book to us. Uh, That was episode 163 when Shalane talked about that book. Uh, But Brad is a researcher. He's an author. He's a writer. He's a father. He, along with Steve Magnus, wrote this book, The Passion Paradox. They are also the authors of the book, Peak Performance. Both very good books. Uh, Not only, though, do Brad and I talk about the book in this, we get into the details of the effects our phones have on our lives, social media has on our lives. And, and I honestly really liked this unfiltered, very engaged conversation that I got to have with Brad. I think he's doing really awesome work and I think he's just a really great guy. So I hope you guys will go check out his book actually on the post today on Instagram for this episode, we are giving away a copy of the book. So head over to lindsayhine626, my Instagram page over there, and enter to win one of the books because you're going to want to read it. Hey, everybody, I would love it if you would come run the One America 500 Festival Mini Marathon with me this year. This is a race that is local here in Indianapolis, and it's a race. Actually, it wasn't the first half marathon I ever ran. And I've ran it almost every single year since then. So the first year I ran it, I believe was 2005. And I've probably only missed just a couple years. So it's a really special race to me since it was my first half. It was actually Glenn's first half as well. And it's a really flat, fun, fast course named one of America's most iconic races by Runner's World and Best Half Marathons in America. One of the coolest things about this race is you actually get to run on the Indy 500 track, which if you know anything about race cars and that scene, you'll know that that is a really, really cool thing. Uh, so anyway, I am doing a huge meetup this weekend too. So, uh, I've got a couple of friends coming into town, Janae Barron, hungry runner girl, Charlie Watson, the runner beans. Those are their social media names. Uh, they're both coming into town. I did a huge giveaway on Instagram where I gave away four entries to the race. So we've got a group of four from Florida coming to stay at our Airbnb, uh, Indy Midtown stay. And so we're going to be doing a shakeout run on Friday, a meetup at the expo. And then the race is Saturday morning, which is going to be awesome. And then Saturday night, I am hosting a live podcast recording. So it's just going to be the best weekend ever. And if you're close to Indy or if you're looking for a race to travel to, uh, this is a great one to come to. So you guys can go to IndyMini.com slash register. And if you use the code ANOTHER19, you can save $7 off your entry fee. Let me know if you sign up. Use the hashtag IndyMini. Tag me. Let me know that you're going to be there. I'm so excited for this weekend of fun. It's only like five weeks away. So register for the race and come hang out with us. It's just going to be one big party all weekend. All right, you guys. I hope that you really enjoy this conversation with Brad Stolberg. All right. Well, today on the podcast, I'm super excited to introduce a person that I have newly been introduced to, Brad Stolberg, to the show. Welcome to All Have Another, Brad. Thanks so much for having me, Lindsay. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I was introduced to you by the one and only Shalane Flanagan on this podcast when she recommended your book that's coming out here in just a little bit. Like, what are we, a week out, 10 days out? Yeah, as we're talking right now, we are, let's see, I should know this off the top of my head. We're like a week and a half out. 
Okay. So if this is a highly recommended book by Shalane Flanagan, I think that we're probably all going to want to read it. Um, Brad, I want to kind of introduce you to my guest. You're an author and an expert on human performance and well-being. Can I, is it fair to say you're a new dad? Are you still in that, that game as a, as a new dad? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'm ever going to get out of that game. Um, <laughs> yes, it, I, I thoroughly feel new. I learn something every day, every half day, every hour, it seems. Do you have a boy or a girl? I've got a boy. He just turned one. Okay. Yeah. You're a new dad. Okay. I got it. <laughs> I gotcha. Well, I am, I am a very um, well-versed parent in the boy, uh, boy parenthood game because I have four boys myself. So if you ever, Oh, I didn't know all four of yours are boys. Wow. (laughs) They're all boys. So, um, that's pretty much all I know. If you hand me a little girl, I really don't know how to do tea parties or anything like that. Not that that's all little girls do, but, um, my house is very much wild and crazy and loud and things getting knocked over and broken all the time. (laughs) It sounds par for the course. Uh, even with just one, that seems to be that seems to be the theme. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about your job, and I'm so fascinated by what you do. You're you're an author and you're a writer. Um, I love that you write for Outside Magazine. That's definitely one of my favorite publications. How did you kind of get into this path of of writing being your career? It was a pretty circuitous path. Um, it, what's what's ironic is looking back is uh, a, a while ago, feels like another life ago, when I was in high school, I really wanted to be a writer. And uh, at the time, Northwestern School of Journalism, it's called the Medill School of Journalism, was the best journalism program in the country, arguably in the world. And I applied and I didn't get in. And like any other 17 year old, I thought, OK, like not going to be a writer. <laughs> um, so I went on to study economics and psychology and um, I always enjoyed writing. So in, in early jobs that weren't focused on writing, if there was an opportunity to tell a story, uh, be it in words or even in, in PowerPoint, I would gravitate towards those opportunities. Uh, and then I also got really into triathlon and marathons, so endurance sports, right around, uh, let's see, 2010-ish. So this is right when like WordPress and Blogger and, and you had to basically have a blog if you were an endurance athlete. Uh, <laughs> I, I had a blog and I'm, I'm pretty confident that no one read it but me. What was it called? Oh man, I don't even know. Something lame. Probably like <laughs> Brad. I, I have no idea. I, it's it's so funny. I, I hope that that doesn't exist on the internet. I probably shouldn't share this information. You're going to pull it up. <laughs> no, you should. <laughs> one, one comment on that. It's so funny how just how you're describing this. Like there was a time when everybody had a blog and they had these like really funny, like you were about to make fun of your blog name and then it turned into their Instagram handles. And I'm always like, do people wish that they could just like change that over to their real name now because I'm really glad that my Instagram is just Lindsay Hine 626. I think it was something like greater than endurance. Okay. Just something outrageous. Um, And like I said, no one read the blog but me. I wasn't even running that fast. Uh, But it was a blessing in disguise because what it was was it was a regular writing practice. So I was writing once or twice a week. uh, And then uh, some of that writing got seen by other people. And I gradually started getting uh, offers to, to write for very small publications and other blogs that had more of a readership than one. 
And I just kind of hacked away at it uh, year over year. And my big break came about five years ago when um, an editor at Outside Magazine offered me a shot to write for them. And that story did pretty well. And uh, as they like to say, the rest is history. So I just wrote and wrote and wrote. Yeah. And you're a regular columnist for them. Now, talk to everybody, though, about your career before the writing thing and the kind of the burnout you went through and how that kind of led you to your first book that you wrote with Steve Magnus, Peak Performance. So I I spent uh, two years at a consulting firm called McKinsey and & Company, and it's one of the um, those kind of international, high-stress, high-power consulting firms. And I loved it. I absolutely loved the work, uh, the intellectual problem solving and the smart people that I was working with and just the ability as a 23, 24 year old to be working with leaders of major organizations to make important decisions was, was utterly thrilling. Uh, but I couldn't turn it off. So when I wasn't at work, I was always at work. And, uh, really at the end of my two years there, as you said, I was experiencing all the signs of burnout. So physically I was not feeling good. I, my hands and feet were cold all the time. I probably had like a low level anxiety that now I would call that at the time I didn't know what was going on. Uh, always thinking I had to the next thing to what I had to do to what I wanted to do. And uh, I became apathetic. I just kind of lost the motivation to do a great job. And it felt like I was still working 20 hours a day. Maybe that's an overstatement, maybe closer to 16. Uh, <laughs> but it felt like I was going through the motions. So the thrill was kind of gone. I was fortunate to go back to graduate school right around then. And that's when I really became interested in wondering if it's possible to perform at that really high level. I felt like I was performing it for the year and a half before the burnout set in without burning out uh, and, and, and how one could possibly sustain that level of performance and think about the trade-offs. Well, maybe you perform a little bit worse now, but you do it over a whole career. So it ends up being a lot better. Those types of questions fascinated me. So that is what I started researching and writing about. All right. So when did you meet Steve and when did you guys decide to write that first book? So I met Steve. Let's see. I met Steve right around the time I started writing for Outside. So probably four and a half, five years ago. Okay. And tell everybody and, who Steve is. Yeah. So Steve. Steve is great. Steve Magnus is a running coach at the University of Houston. And he's also the whistleblower in the Nike Oregon Project doping scandal. And he has also coached uh, many pro athletes, uh, most notably Sarah Hall. And um, he's also one of my best friends now. So okay. that's, that, that's the story. And Steve, we met on Twitter, believe it or not. Uh, Twitter. I, I followed Steve and I started reading some of his blogs. And I thought, wow, this guy, this guy's got really interesting ideas because he was thinking about running using all kinds of things that weren't involved in running. So like he would think about cognitive science and neuroscience and psychology. Uh, and he had one blog post on philosophy and like this guy's coaching pop collegiate and professional runners. And yes, like Steve is a running nerd and he, he writes about biomechanics and VO two max and lactate threshold and all that. But for every, for every blog post about that, I saw, I saw a little bit more of a philosophical one that really piqued my interest. Uh, so it, it was almost like Steve was approaching running from outside of running. And I was approaching the corporate world or just general well-being using principles from running. 
So um, we started like an online, basically like online dating. We, we DM'd <laughs> each other. We started emailing. We Skyped. Um, we had actually landed our, our book deal before we even met in person. I remember him getting off the bar at the time I was living in San Francisco and being like, I hope I like this dude. Because we signed up to write a book together. Um, and, and it all worked out. So I guess I didn't fully answer your question. The, the first book itself, uh, after our long pen pal online dating relationship, I felt that I could trust Steve enough to share this idea that I had for the book that became peak performance. And when I shared it, Steve wrote me back and he's like, no way, I've, I've been having lots of similar ideas. Here's 70 pages of notes to prove it. Uh, so at that point, it was like, well, it doesn't make sense for both of us to do this separately. Why don't we experiment with doing it together? Uh, we're also both athletes. So there was something about a team approach that felt really right. I want to I want to get to the passion paradox as well because this is the book that's coming out. But I also want to explore a little bit more about um, the purpose behind that first book because it seems like the passion paradox is kind of like okay we did this one and now we're going to build on that and move on to some deeper topics. So can you kind of yeah share, that's totally it is that it okay? Well, share with everybody what your purpose behind peak performance was. So the purpose behind peak performance was rather simple. It, it, it was to try to answer that question that I had in graduate school and that Steve had when he burned out from running, which was, can you perform at a peak level for a long period of time? And if so, what are the practices based on evidence that allow one to do that? Uh, so unlike a, a Malcolm Gladwell outliers where you're taking individual stories, we went kind of the opposite route and we looked across all the different domains of science to try to find common themes. And then we honed in on those common themes, asked great performers whether or not they use them, if so, how. And we came up with a few general operating principles or practices to help one sustain peak performance. Um, like you said, it, it's a great book and I'm super proud of it. Um, and then though we got to thinking like, okay, like, like this is great. And like, what's the point of it all? And what do you tell someone that's a constant pusher that just wants to go, 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 get better, get better, get better? Like, is that a good way to live? Is that a bad way to live? Why do we even put value? Like, is it values neutral? Because um, everyone that we interviewed for that book had such passion. And while people explain that passion being their greatest gift, not a single high performer didn't also mention that that passion at some point in their life was a terrible curse. Uh, so like you said, the second book like really gets in the weeds and says, okay, so if you want to be a peak performer, if you're practicing these principles, you're hell bent on improving. If you're giving your all to something that all sounds great, but is it great or is there a dark side? And if there's a dark side, well, how can you possibly avoid that? Well, yeah. And are we just not, are we just avoiding the dark side? Are we just not talking about it? Because I guess my question is, like from talking with and working with these elite athletes like Shalane, like Des, what have you learned? And you know, what, what, what does the book talk about in terms of like, obviously those women are peak performers. Yeah. They crush, they crush, but like, where is the balance or lack of there is, balance? There, there is none. Yeah. That's the thing. You um, know? So, how, so yeah. how, how do they stay so successful for so many years then? So, that, that, that's a great question. It's kind of the core of my work. So the, the first thing that I would say, um, and, and I've talked to Shalane quite a bit. I'm not as close as I've only talked to her a few times. But both of those women uh, 
are really, really focused on the process of getting better. So yes, they obviously want to win races, but neither of those women are set out to become a multimillionaire and get the biggest shoe deal. Mm. They just want to get better at running. Okay. And that mindset is so helpful for staying on a path of improvement. Because with that mindset, if you fail, it's not a total catastrophe because you can still get better. If anything, you learn from failure. Uh, and then the other thing that Shalane and Des do really well is they're really methodical about alternating between stress and rest in their training, uh, which is which I assume has been a huge reason that neither of them, uh, I'm sure that both of them would have said that they've overreached, maybe even overtrained at times in their career. But on the whole, they've been able to train pretty consistently. And that is because they, they honor the fact that if they're going to train really hard, they need to couch that really hard period with a really easy period. Uh, and then the other thing that, that both of those women are is they are pretty singularly focused on running. When it's when it's the running season, there's not much else other than running. Uh, and that's where this conversation about passion and trade-offs and what does it mean to be passionate and what are the costs of being great, uh, that, that's where it comes in. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned, we're, we're talking about athletes here, but you also work with entrepreneurs and executives on their mental skills uh, what do you, what do you most prefer? Like, I mean, I know you have to say you kind of like each aspect of it, but like what kind of individual do you like most getting in their mind about? You know, I think it's less the, the field of work and more the temperament. So there's a, there's a type of individual, and I don't think there's a personality test for this that I like to call a pusher. And that is someone that just wants to like push, 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 go, go, go. Uh, someone that is, that is kind of not living in the future, but constantly thinking about the next thing. So they finish the race and they're happy for an hour. And then it is, what am I going to do next? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's a really interesting psychological makeup for me to work with because that's my makeup. So like very <laughs> self-servingly, I'm trying to learn from the people that I'm, I'm, I'm working with. And it feels good to know that, Hey, there are other people around there that are, um, that are similar. And that have a similar temperament and a similar wiring. So I, again, I think it's less like I wouldn't say I prefer entrepreneurs or I prefer athletes. I prefer executives, but I like working with really driven people that want to push, push, push. Okay, so if you're lazy, don't reach out to Brad. He doesn't want to work with you. <laughs> okay, but talk to me about the. Push well, I want to learn from you if you're oh, lazy. Okay. Because, okay. <laughs> because I think, like again, that that that's so important to be values neutral here because there's. There, there's there's something to say for being. I wish I could be a little bit lazy. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's good. Yeah, I've I've got some people I could refer you to that that refer to you that might have that those uh, tendencies. That and that's okay. Some people are just more driven to do uh, bigger professional things, and some people are like totally fine with going to work and coming home and that being their day and moving on. And that's actually can be kind of a blessing, right? Yeah, that's the thing. There's no there's no right or wrong way. Um, and I think that what's funny is I, I talk about this um, with a lot of my friends, that the grass is always greener on the other side. So people that kind of work the nine to five job, come home, check out, are with their family, watch a TV show, go to sleep, never thinking about work, very content. They tend to wish that they had more drive. Mm. And really driven people that can never turn it off, they tend to wish that they were able to turn it off. Okay, so the question is, how do you turn it off as a pusher? That's challenging. Um, it's really hard. 
uh, I, I, for me personally, and I also see this in a lot of people I work with, setting really clear boundaries. If I, if I tell myself that I'm not going to work after six unless something important comes up, well, then I'm always going to be working after six. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, it's like, okay, six o'clock rolls around, done. Phone in the other room, computer closed, uh, phone on airplane mode. So I, I, I avoid the temptation when I pick it up to use it for an alarm to check it. Um, so just like really being intentional with how I design the space around me and how I set certain rules or boundaries to, to, to make sure that I turn it off. It doesn't mean that I necessarily turn it off in my head, but it's helpful. Uh, I mean, there are still nights for sure. I, I, I shouldn't say I hate to admit it. It just is what it is. But there are nights when I'm on the ground wrestling with my kid and my mind is like thinking about the essay that I want to write the next day. Totally. Um, and, and that's just my makeup. And I try to, you know, bring it back to the kid over and over again. Uh, and I'm a work in progress. Yeah, it's hard. And I, I, I feel you because I like, for instance, on Mondays and Wednesdays, I work and I have a babysitter all day and then I get home at five. Um, I'm gone from 1030 to five. And when I get home at five, I'm like, put your phone away. Literally just be with your kids for these two hours. Um, and I, I get my phone out and do Instagram stories, but like, don't think about responding to an email. Don't think about checking up on things. But then I find myself being like, having an idea, like some random idea that has nothing to do with what my actual like projects are right now. And I'm like, well, I better go write that down. You know, I don't want to forget that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. That's it. And that's like, that's the pusher mentality. Um, cause not everyone's wired like that. Yeah. And it, I, I feel you too. And I, I'm like, sometimes I'm, I'm so overly kind of not, not obsessed in a bad way, but just like thinking about all the creative things I can do with my job. And I'm like, man, my husband, I know he's sick of hearing me talk about it. So I have to kind of like restructure how I want conversations to go because he doesn't want to talk about my business 24 seven. So it's so interesting to hear you say that, Lindsay, because I think that that like what you're describing right there, that that energy and that inability to turn it off or inability to be content with where you are and wanting to build, 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 create, create, create. My hunch is that you would probably say like that is such a gift and a blessing to be so energized by your work and to have it stimulate you so much. Um, But then on the flip side, it can become a negative thing in your life if you really can't turn it off. But but like what the paradox is, is it can be both at the same time. So the feeling of being on 24-7, almost like falling in love. Like the only thing you can think about is the business that you're going to build or the marathon that you're training for um, or the book that you're writing. That's a great thing until it's not. And it's how do you recognize that until it's not points and prevent it from happening. Yeah. Okay. This is a great transition into actually talking about the book because that this is pretty much what the book is about. The new book, uh, The Passion Paradox, a guide to going all in, finding success and discovering the benefits of unbalanced life. Now I read that and I thought unbalanced life, because you know what? It's funny. I'm kind of a preacher of a balanced life. People and it's just as I'm hearing you talk about it, I'm like, oh, but wait, I want that balance because you're talking about um, you talk about this like long term balance. Right. And I think about the short term balance, which, which I'm constantly striving to to seek, like I'm constantly striving to very have much. You, have you done it yet? What have you done it yet? Like, have you accomplished it? 
honestly, I think I kind of am right now, to be honest. And it's awesome. I don't, I don't say that like in a, in a conceited manner either. Like I feel like people like kind of glamorize the word hustle these days. That's like, you know, it's so cool to see someone going out there and like getting their dreams, like going after their dreams. And, and I'm known for preaching this message of balance. And some people think it doesn't exist. Um, the thing is though, like I like to hustle. I love big projects. I love when I think of ideas for this podcast in my show and tackling big projects. I like to work hard and run fast marathons. Um, but I also really like to relish in lazy evenings and do nothing on Saturday mornings with my kids and just go to, go to a basketball game. And I, I think I can do both. I mean, that's not to say that I'm not thinking about my podcast and things like that when I'm at the basketball game, but man, I'm okay with skipping a run and laying on the couch with my kids and, but still the next day getting up and getting, you know, the run I I was going to get in the next day. So yeah, it's tough, but I kind of feel like in this season of, um, I've found a balance with my babysitter schedule and things like that. It feels pretty good to say no to things and yes to things I'm excited about. That's awesome. Congratulations. But that Um, makes me sound like a big brat sometimes I feel like. No, I mean, I don't know. I don't think so because you also said something interesting there, which is like sometimes you're at a basketball game with your kids, but you're still thinking about the podcast. Of course. And, and then what I would say is like, well, maybe like the brat balance, if you really have it all figured out, you'd be able to just be completely at the game with your kid Mm-hmm. And completely on the podcast when you're on your podcast, and that's really hard. Is it uh, is that really... attainable though? I mean, is that even like something that can you really shut it off? I don't know. Right, I I have no idea either. I haven't. I I've, I've met very few people who can, and they've trained their minds really well. But like that, that's like this question of being values neutral. Is it like maybe that's a better way to live? But there's something to say for having a great idea when you're at the basketball game with your kid. Like that, there's nothing wrong with that inherently. Um. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like the whole notion that, you know, we're very much talking about a lot these days because everybody's on their phone all the time. And it's that notion of like, why don't we live in the moment and stop thinking about what everybody else is doing and stop thinking about what we're going to do and just literally be here. And I yeah, be where you are. Yeah, that's important. I've thought about that so much. I've thought about, especially as a young mom, um, or at least a mom to young kids, I should say, like, what were our parents doing when our kids were little? And if our moms were home with them quite a bit or our dads, whatever it may have been, like what were they doing throughout the day? They didn't have Instagram. Like I'm sitting here on my Instagram stories, like telling people about my day and like sharing that. And like, there's a sense of not being lonely there because I have that. But like, how much are we not living in the moment? Cause we're doing those things. Whereas what were our parents doing? You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot. Um, I think like we're not living in the moment a lot and they probably weren't doing as much, but, but they were, they were there, uh, not just physically, but psychologically there more too. Um, and that's this interesting thing. So like the, the unbalanced life in the subtitle, I'm glad that you got on that. What that means is not, it it goes, so when I hear balance, like a conventional definition of balance is that day to day, you've got a really good tight schedule. You're kind of the perfect, I mean, I mentioned some of this earlier. You're the, you're the perfect mom, the perfect entrepreneur, the perfect athlete, the perfect partner. You read your book, you watch your TV show, like boom, 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 boom. 
And what the research tends to show, and, and this played out in the reporting too, is people, when, when they're in that type of vibe, it can, it, it can kind of at times feel like going through the motions. So mm. people really prefer, they, people say that they, that they feel most alive when they're going all in on something. So that can be being a new parent, training for a, a marathon, falling in love is a great example. Um, if you're a physician, like a surgeon in the OR. So when you're, when you're doing the thing, it kind of gets back to what you're saying about being present. So you want to be going all in on that thing, and then you want to evaluate the trade-off. So here's what I'm sacrificing as a result. And then boom, move to the next thing. So like with that Instagram example, I would almost argue like, well, maybe that's not balance. Maybe balance would be, and, and I don't know, I don't know you all enough. You'd have to figure this out for yourself. Everyone's different, but maybe balance would actually be that when you're, when you're at work or when you're like, you're completely there and maybe you're actually doing that a little bit longer, but then when you're, when you're not there, there's no phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to me, that's like a more. Uh, I don't want to say a healthier because again, that's laden with judgment, but, but that to me is like going all in here, then switching, going all in there, then switching, going all in there, then switching. And you can do that over the course of the day, over the course of a week, over the course of a month, a year or a lifetime. Like I talk about this with Shalane all the time, how for her, she's terribly unbalanced at any given point in her, her life. But if you look at the course of like a decade, she's actually pretty balanced. She has periods where she's just all in on running. And then she has periods where she's all in on her book. And then when she's with her family, that's the only thing that's on her mind. And then she has community building periods. But if you catch her in any one of those periods, you don't get a balanced person, right? Mm -hmm. Because she's like singularly focused on the thing. Um, And and, and that to me is like this interesting way to think about balance. And I think for a lot of people, it's more attainable. It sounds really healthy. Like the way you explained Shalane's balance, like to me, that sounds really healthy. I mean... I guess I don't know what that would look like if, for instance, she already had children or, you know, something like that. But right, it gets like, harder. Totally. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm realizing that with a kid now myself. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I, I, I like it's I still what what I'm what I'm practicing myself and what the research bears is that you could even condense this to like a day or a week. And for me, that might be making the active choice. So instead of wrestling with my kid for two hours at night, it's only an hour and a half or an hour and 15 minutes. But in that hour and 15 minutes, there's, there's nothing else going on. And I've more or less tried to clear my mind. So I'm fully with him versus being kind of like 70% with him for two hours. Um, and evaluating that trade-off that might change, right? Like there might, there might be a time in a place I'm launching a book right now. So I'm very unbalanced in that direction. But when that book launches over, it might be the opposite. Right. I, I am not going to be pen and paper starting the next book at the same intensity. That'll be a, that'll be a time for family uh, and friends. So it's just I guess it's kind of like thinking about, well, here's the priority of going all in right now. I'm not going to do it blindly. Here are the trade offs I have to make. Here are the things I'm sacrificing as a result. I need to be OK with those sacrifices and I need to pull up pretty regularly to make sure that the inertia of the thing that I'm pursuing doesn't totally suck me in. Yes. You know, I'm just thinking through all this and I'm like, man, how much has parenting changed (laughs) since we've all had smartphones? Oh, so much. You know, and I don't want it to be sad. Like smartphones are the way of the world. Like that is where we're at. Yeah, it's not going away. 
eventually, you know, actually my husband and I just recorded a Patreon episode and we talked about this a lot. Um, like he asked me, uh, on the show, like without us discussing first to see if we'd have the same answer, like when will we let our kids have phones? And I said, I, I think like whenever they're out by themselves, like, and they need to get a hold of us. And that doesn't mean a smartphone. That means like a flip phone, like where you can call me if you need to call me. Um, and then we decided smartphones when maybe they can drive, but like, it's just like, it's so scary, but it's just the way of the world. And that's just what we have to kind of surrender to, but also like set all these guidelines and parameters. Like it's so different from 1995 when we were teenagers. Yeah, it really is. It's, it, it's hard. It, it, it's hard to be prescriptive because everyone is so different and everyone has a different relationship with their phone and with the apps on their phone. Um, but I, I think as a general rule, and this is certainly my own practice and, and it's backed by a fair amount of literature, you can have the strongest willpower in the world, but if your phone is on you, you're probably going to be checking it. And if you're not checking it, the amount of energy you spend resisting checking it is like going to take away from whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, so I think, as you mentioned, like the boundaries and the practice of, of responsibly using a smartphone really is around, this is when I intend to use it and I'm going to have it on me. And at periods when I want to be fully there for the thing I'm doing, I'm not going to have the thing near me. Yeah, it's really good. This morning I left my phone and a lot of times when I'm getting my kids ready to take the biggest one to school, I'll leave it upstairs on the charger for that like 45 minutes of getting everybody dressed, making sure everybody has their shoes on, getting everybody fed. Like, and if someone texts me or anything, I know that sounds so silly. Like, Oh, you can't get a hold of me for those 45 minutes. But like, oftentimes I come back from that 45 minutes and I'm or hour or whatever it is. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, all these updates because I haven't checked my phone, you know, every 10 minutes. And it's just, it's insane how we've kind of transitioned into this way. And, and I heard you talk about this before, like if you're going to go and we're talking about like when you're going to work and how you can be effective and efficient with your work that you, I've heard you say that you'll just leave your phone at home and won't even take it with you. Yeah, I don't. And, and it, this is an ongoing thing with my wife because now with a kid, she wants to be able to reach me always. And um, so I've figured out how to program it so it will only ring if it's her calling me. Oh, that's perfect. Um, and I just I still bury it in my backpack, though, because for me, the mere sight of mm-hmm. a phone immediately triggers me to think about, well, like how many people are looking at my latest story and what's happening on Twitter and am I falling behind on email? Uh, so I, I try to just keep it completely out of sight. Um, and then there are still days, um, when I don't bring it and I just leave it at home when I go to the coffee shop to work, especially when I'm writing. Are you, this is kind of a strange question to ask, but I'm asking it cause I kind of feel this way. Does it embarrass you that you feel like you have to go reach for your phone so often? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I try not to judge myself cause I think if I judge myself or if, if you judge yourself, it just makes like, it doesn't help the matter. Okay. So I actually think like the, the way that I think about this is that the individuals that design those apps on the phone, uh, a lot of them have PhDs in neuroscience and they've designed a product to be maximally addictive. And I'm a human and I have a human brain. And if you put a human brain with a product that's designed to be maximally addictive, the result is going to probably be addictive tendencies so the thing for me is to remove the maximally addictive thing 
because then you don't have the option. Um, and gradually over time, the less that I have my phone, the better I feel without it. Mm-hmm. So then when I do have it, the less I'm thinking about checking it. So true. That's so good. Hey friends, a quick break to thank a couple sponsors for this episode. And the first is Jaybird Sport. I am loving the Run XT headphones, the wireless headphones. You guys, why have I been running with headphones that have cords for so long? I don't know why, but I've finally made the switch and these headphones are legit. I don't know about you, but I run with headphones for most of my runs if they're done solo. And yes, I'm careful and safe about it, Um, especially when I'm I'm on the treadmill, though, I'm I'm wearing headphones. Um, I usually start my run with a podcast and end it with music. And that tends to be how I most enjoy my run, because when I turn the music on, it's like, woohoo, I'm getting pumped up now. Uh, But anyway, the Jaybird team is made up of serious runners, cyclists and athletes, and they have focused on building the best wireless headphones for athletes. They've recently revamped the Run XT wireless headphones and the sound quality is just legit. All right, you guys, right now my listeners can save 20% off a pair of the just released Run XT true wireless headphones and free shipping through the end of March. So jump on this right now. Go to jaybirdsport.com. And use the code ANOTHER to take advantage of this offer. And these are available for one per customer. So again, go to jaybirdsport.com and use the code ANOTHER to take advantage of this offer. Thank you, Jaybird Sport, for supporting this episode of the podcast. And the last sponsor I want to thank today is Mercury Mile. Spring is here. Time to freshen up your running gear. Mercury Mile has everything you need to look and feel great as the weather turns warmer. Actually, this is the time of year where I'm so excited to freshen up my running gear. So guys, every run is an experience and Mercury Mile makes shopping for running an experience as well. MercuryMile.com is the place to go for the latest styles. Fusing fashion with function, you will find top brand shorts, tops, tights, and accessories in calm, cool color palettes or bright, bold patterns. You can start running your Mercury Mile in just three easy steps. Go to mercurymile.com, complete a short profile outlining your sizes and preferences, choose a shipment date and check out. It's that simple. At mercurymile.com, their expert stylists create a personalized shopping experience for men and women. Then they deliver what you need right to your doorstep so you can get moving. Go to mercurymile.com and use the code ANOTHER19 to get $10 off your stylist fee. Again, that's mercurymile.com. Use the code ANOTHER19 to get $10 off your stylist fee. All right, everybody, enjoy the rest of my conversation with Brad Stolberg. All right, passion paradox. You talk about in the book how finding your passion isn't as simple as we might think it is. So talk to us a little bit about that idea. So there's this notion that passion is like lightning striking. So you come across this activity and suddenly like you know that that's your life's work or this is the thing that makes you tick. Uh, What the research shows though is that that's not at all the case. Uh, Only about 20% of people come to a passion that way. The other 80% of people, they start out with something that might pique their interest. They might be okay at it, mediocre. And it's over a period, sometimes over a period of years, that they finally become passionate about it. So they're actually like they're cultivating passion as they go versus immediately feeling this this sense of lightning striking. 
What's problematic is that the research shows that the inverse is true of what people think. So 80% of people have to cultivate a passion, 20% get lightning strike, but 80% of people expect that passion will be like lightning striking. Mm. And the result is that you're constantly moving from one thing to the next because you're seeking like this perfect feeling or this perfect mesh with an activity and you're not getting it. What's fascinating is that the, the numbers in passion research and the numbers in love, it's very similar. So lots of people have the same mindset about love. Oh, and yeah. Partic- particularly now with all these apps, there's this mindset that, oh, the perfect person's out there. I can find my soulmate. Again, what the research shows is that like soulmate is kind of a false construct. And especially lasting relationships, those relationships are built over time. So it's, it's like if you, have this, um, if you have this bar of it needs to be perfect. So I need to find the perfect job that feels great from the outset or the perfect person that I'm madly in love with from the outset, you can get into this cycle of seeking because perfect is often this thing that is evolving and that is built, not that just magically happens. That's so, that's such a good analogy to the love thing. And, and it's like movies portray that, you know, it's like, yeah, the, like, we write, we write about that in the book. Like we grew up watching Disney movies. Yeah. Prince or Princess Charming. Yeah, that instant um, connection. Yes. And it's not just like my opinion. There's there's literature that we cite in the book. Researchers have looked at this. They've surveyed hundreds, thousands of people uh, that most lasting love is not born out of instant connection. I mean, yes, there's a spark, of course. Sure. But but there are ups and there are downs and there are periods of monotony. And if you expect it to be great all the time, it's going to fizzle out. Uh, whereas if you view it more as an ongoing practice or something that you have to nourish and cultivate, you're much more likely to end at a perfect point, but that might be after 30 years. Yeah. So how do we find that, what that passion is though, you know, and you know, I, I it's like, I would say I'm passionate about podcasting. I would say I have people in my life that would say, I don't really know what I'm passionate about because they don't have the lightning bolt. So like, what, how do, how do we, or those people find that 80%, like the 80%, like how yeah. do we find it and cultivate it? So the, the first thing is just the shift in mindset that it doesn't have to be perfect from the outset yeah. because that feels like such a weight off of people's shoulders, right? You're told like all the commencement speeches, find your passion and you'll be happy. Well, <laughs> shit, like I can't find it. I was not passionate about writing when I first started writing. It, it, I'd say that I, I would describe writing as a passion probably only like a year or two ago. Wow. Um, so it was interesting though, and I enjoyed it, but it didn't feel like, oh, this is my life's work. Um, so just releasing from that notion that like a passion has to be your life's work is really important. And then the other thing that can be really practical is there's something called self-determination theory. And it's an older theory of what makes humans tick. And there are three overarching things. The first is autonomy or having some control over what you're doing. The second is competence or mastery, which is being able to make progress and see that progress. And then the third is belonging or relatedness, which is being connected to a community. So podcasting is perfect, right? Because there's autonomy, mm-hmm. like you're, you are fully in control of your podcast. Mm-hmm. There's mastery. I'm sure that if, if you were to listen to your first episode and your most recent episode, you've gotten a lot better. You've learned <laughs> things. And then there's belonging because you're in this community. You've got a community of the people that you're having conversations with. You've got a community of listeners. 
Um, so it ticks all three of those boxes. Yeah. There, there are tons of activities that do, but again, a lot of people look in, in the other direction for passion and they might try to find passion um, in something that is very solitary. And then they're like, well, like, I don't, I don't, the, the spark's not there. And a great example, and I know it's an example that a lot of your audience cares about is running. Mm. Um, running with a community and being involved in running is a community endeavor is so much different than just running by yourself. And this would be a fascinating study, but I'd hazard to bet that individuals that view running as part of being in a community probably have longer, happier running careers than those that just view it as a completely solitary endeavor. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of back to the phones and social media, like Instagram itself and Strava. And they've like created communities for this like culture of running, you know, if even if people don't have it one on one in their real lives, I mean, people are seeking out that community um, online, but that kind of, I think you have to be, I think you have to be careful real quick to, to interject because yes, it can be community, but I also think that people maybe start seeking out community online, but then those technologies are kind of designed to just have you compare yourself to other people. Well, yeah. So it's very different to log on to Instagram or Strava be like, oh, awesome. Like, here's what my friends across the country are doing, or here's these other people making progress. I feel a part of this versus, oh, wow. Like Lindsay's splits look a lot better than mine. What does that mean? Yeah. And I was, that's exactly kind of where I was going with this. Cause I was thinking about how, um, in the book you talk about how passions turn into like obsessive passions and you start looking for these external validations and like, that's what social media can, if you let it, turn into. Um, I don't know how we get on the track of like just focusing on what we are doing and where our goals are and competing against ourselves because we're, you know, like 99.9% of us have no real reason to compete with anybody but right. ourselves. Like Shalane's competing to win the Boston Marathon. Des is competing, competing to win the Boston Marathon. But like I'm competing to beat my last best marathon and I can't sit here and compare what I'm doing six months postpartum to what Nancy's doing six months postpartum. But I do 100% see what you're saying and know that, that it's a trap that, that people fall into. So how do we avoid that while still embracing the community it provides, you know? Yeah. So that's a real thing. Um, it often happens without people even realizing it. Yeah. So you, start, you start out really passionate about activity and that's great. Like you love doing the thing. And then suddenly you get good at the thing and you start getting really good results. And then you become more passionate about those results and the external validation than the thing itself. Mm, mm-hmm. And that's the difference between harmonious and obsessive passion. So harmonious is the good kinds. I love writing. Obsessive is the not so good kinds. I love people reading my stuff and saying that it's good. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a spectrum and it's not black or white. Right. So like we're all humans. Everyone feels good from accomplishing something. Uh, I'm a firm believer, and this comes out in the book, that as long as the majority of your passion is harmonious, you're probably good. So if you're 60-40, you're great. The problem is when you're, when, when, when you're 60 obsessive, 40 harmonious, that's when things can, can get a little bit shaky. Um, so like a, a, an example, and maybe you can relate to this as a podcaster, is... There's a big difference between the feeling I get actually writing 
in the feeling I get going on social media and seeing retweets and likes or hearing people review my book. Totally. The, the writing feeling is much more satiating and kind of nourishing. The other feeling feels like much more of an acute high, but it often kind of leaves me feeling hollow or empty. Like, I'm not perfect. There are days that I get sucked into the social media rabbit hole and I spend three hours just looking at notifications. And I feel kind of gross after that. Totally. Um, but the flip side is also true. Like, if I write a kick-ass story and it goes viral on the internet, it feels really good. So the, 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 the practice is taking that in and being like, oh, this feels great, but then not spending, like, the next week, like, <laughs> continuing to, to, you know, swipe down to see how many more people retweeted you or how many more people downloaded your podcast. Yeah. Um, but, but it's also not to hold yourself to this perfect bar where I just do the work. I don't care <laughs> if people like what I do. Because, like, that's unattainable, and I don't even think that's good. So it's like, how do you put the external validation in its place and make sure that that's, the, that's never the majority of why you're doing what you do? Yeah, I mean, it's it seems to me, and I'm sure there are people that do put their head down and just do the work and don't pay attention to what people are saying, but it seems I pretty... I think those people are lying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> it seems pretty re- unrealistic. And to be completely honest... I feel what you said you feel about like that gross feeling like, oh, I keep checking these notifications. However, it also like when I see someone share a recent podcast episode on their Instagram stories, for instance, and they tag me like when they write a message about what that episode meant to them or something like that. It's like to me, it says like, oh, Lindsay, good. Like you're doing good work. Like this is meaningful work and it makes me feel good and makes me feel excited to the, to do the next thing because I feel like people are benefiting from it. Um, totally. And that's like the community relatedness thing. So that's, yeah. that's good. But yeah, it's also go gross too because you don't want to sit here yeah. and like self-serve yourself and think, oh, give myself these pats on the back. But like you like to see that your work is meaningful. It's a really tough balance. Totally. And that's why like it's the spectrum. Yeah. Like I said, 60, 40, you're probably okay if you're 51, 49. Yeah. But I just think it, get, it gets, it, 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 if, if the majority comes from the outside, yeah. then you set yourself up for these periods of fragility, which is when maybe you have a streak of podcasts where you're not getting that feedback, where you're not mm-hmm. getting the same amount of feedback. Mm-hmm. And then are you going to feel really shitty about yourself? And are you going to have doubts and question what you're doing? Or are you going to be able to say like, actually, I love having good conversations. Yeah. And that's what makes me tick, the conversation itself. Um, there's this, there's this term in behavioral science called hedonic adaptation, which just says that we very quickly adapt to the level of happiness or reward that we're at and we want more. So like the trap with that, and I'm, I'm, I I know this viscerally because I, I go through this myself is when you have a podcast that goes viral and maybe you've got like, I don't know, a few thousand people on social media commenting, telling you it's great. Well, then if the next one doesn't have that, you might not feel as good. And that to me, that can be like a roller coaster of emotion. So how do we handle that with care and, you know, keep the same drive that we once had when there's the ups and downs? So I think this is this is another part of why the book is called Paradox. So there's like the paradox of balance we talked about. There's the paradox of you don't just find your passion, you actually cultivate it. And then there's the paradox of everyone says follow your passion. But it's actually more like practice your passion. Like it, it, you don't follow it as very passive. 
to me, like following it is like, yikes, like you might start off controlling your passion, but then by the end, it's going to control you. Mm -hmm. Whereas practicing it is a more of a proactive approach. So like realizing that it's this, it's this strong psychological and, and neurochemical force that has to be handled with care. So what are some ways to practice it? Uh, one way is this notion of giving yourself 24 to 48 hours after a big win or a tough loss to feel really good or really bad, but then getting back to work. Because the act of getting back to work kind of like in, it shows your mind-body system that, hey, the reason that I like doing the thing is because I actually like the thing. So after a huge win, like it feels great. You get that dopamine rush, the high of, of, of and that win can be a promotion at work. It can be winning a race. It can be writing an article that goes viral, whatever it is. Once you come off that high, if you immediately get back to the work, it's very humbling because A, like it's still hard to, to do the thing. And B, you're reminding yourself that the reason that I like this is because I enjoy the craft itself. And same thing with a tough loss. You can be demoralizing for a bit, but then you get back to work and it's like, you know what? I actually... I like writing more than having a story do well or not. It's actually about the writing itself. Um, what happens is the longer that period is of having a big win or big loss before you get back to the work, the more your brain is just wiring around the external stuff. So the, the, the positive reinforcement or the negative. Um, and then that's how you kind of get into this cycle where actually what your brain's craving is net that, not the feeling that doing an, an activity that you love brings. Um, so that's certainly one thing. Another thing that can be really helpful is to reflect on your purpose for what you're doing. So very few people start out doing something because their purpose is, I want to be famous or I want all the external validation. Uh, and if there are listeners that have that, then I would challenge them to really kind of ask, well, like, why? Well, what is being famous going to do for you that, that is going to fix your problems? Um, but let's assume that most people don't start out with that. Most people start out doing something because they want to master the craft. They want to make a difference in people's lives um, or they just really like it. So coming back to that core purpose, again, especially after big wins or tough losses is really helpful because it's just a good reminder of, hey, like the reason I record podcast isn't so I can share it on Instagram and get all the notifications because I like having interesting conversations. Um, and, and I think you actively have to remind yourself about that because the, the external stuff, like it's a strong pull. Humans mm -hmm. evolved to be these social animals and we crave that validation. So when we get it, it feels really good. The problem is then we become dependent on it. So I think like the theme of, of all the things that I'm saying, and there's so many concrete practices in the book, like that 24 hour rule is come back to the work itself or come back to the intimate community that you're doing the work in. Because like, that's where the meaning is, right? The meaning, I would even argue that the meaning is probably less on people commenting on Instagram, even if they're great comments, and more in the conversations or the, the conversations that you have with the people you're interviewing, or even like your close-knit community of other podcasters that are like sharing in the craft. Um, so I think that it's coming back to the work and then coming back to the, the intimate community that you're sharing it with. Well, and I hope everybody listening, like we're talking, he's using podcasting as an example, but like, this is everything. Yeah. let's talk Thank about you. running, you know, I mean, that's like, that's the game and that's, I, you've seen it happen. You see it happen so often, like you run because you love to run, but then you start running faster and then you start getting that validation from people like, oh, you're so fast. Oh my gosh, your workouts are so great. And it's a, it's a 
beast that's you're just getting you're just feeding the beast with that the social media machine so um i think that all of that just makes so much sense like go back to why you started running in the first place and you know what like i've actually seen lots of friends cycle through this like get to the point where they they fed that validation so much and they became so obsessed with the running and then they kind of let it go and take a back seat. And like the clearer picture of why they ran in the first place is like so much more visible now in their lives. Yes. And it, and it, and it tends to feel better that way. Um, and people tend to perform better. Mm-hmm. Like it's very hard to perform well when you're in a place of caring what other people think, like just even saying that it, the emotion that most people say that that brings about is tightness or constriction. Whereas if you're running out of love because you love the community, you love the sport, you love being in a race, that tends to feel more open and expansive. And it's a lot easier to perform well in an open and expansive space, not this tight and constricting space. Um, Yeah. Okay. And then the other piece of the book, like how do we let go of things we were once passionate about and need to move on from? And, And an example I would... I would bring in because you you can need to move on for multiple reasons, but I have a specific example, um, and that is my mom. She uh, became a marathon runner at the age of uh, like forty. I mean, she she had us really young, so I was like out of high school when my mom was forty, um, and she started running marathons when I did. But she five years in had to quit because she had really bad knees and she just couldn't run marathons anymore. So she's really struggled honestly with some depression issues around that because she had a love, like she was passionate and it made her happy. So how do we healthily, uh, healthily, is that a word? I don't know, but how do we move on from those passions when we have to move on? It's so hard. This is, this is another paradox, right? You love the thing but the more you love it, the harder it is to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we can use your mom as an example because that's a great one, but this is everything. This is like kids moving out of the house if you're a parent. This is a romantic partner dying. Mm. This is uh, an entrepreneur whose business fails or someone that's been a career at an organization retiring. So like this is a, this is a, this is a common thing. And that's the paradox, it's the get. Like, you want to love your kids or your significant other or the sport or your career so strongly because that is so energizing and meaningful and powerful. Like you don't want to go through the motions. You want to be completely there. But the more you love the thing, the harder it is to move on from the thing. Um, so first, it's just acknowledging that and like putting some love and compassion around that. If you're going through a transition, being really kind to yourself. Uh, and, and if you're feeling down or depressed, like don't judge yourself for that. That's normal. It's really hard to be a human that cares about something and then have to move on to the thing from the thing. Um, a lot of people judge themselves and they're like, well, why can't I just move on? Why am I feeling like this? And that self judging only makes it worse. So then once, once you kind of have that, and and, and it's so easy to say shift in mindset, like that's a practice too. Like it's really hard to be kind to yourself when you're feeling down. So once you're working on being kind to yourself and some other things that can help uh, getting involved with other people that have made that similar transition can be so helpful. Um, in an extreme example, this is why uh, recovery groups for people struggling with substance abuse work so well. I mean, what is substance abuse? If, if like, what is addiction? If not a passion, right? Mm-hmm. Moving on from that passion is really challenging for people. 
people tend to have an easier time when they're in support groups. Uh, that's why Alcoholics Anonymous continues to be a pretty effective way to, to, to recover from alcoholism because other people have been there and they've gone through it and they can support you and they can normalize what you're feeling. Um, and then the last step is, so you're kind to yourself. You try to reach out to other people that have walked the path. And then once you're feeling a little bit better, you identify the things that made you love the thing. And you try to use those things in other endeavors. And again, this is all so much easier said than done, but that's kind of the three-step the three-step path. So kindness to yourself, don't judge yourself. Judging yourself just makes it worse. Realizing that, yup, moving on from something I love is really freaking hard. Can't do it alone. So reach out to others that have walked the path. And then once you feel like you've got some stable footing, looking back and saying, well, these are, these are the attributes um, of myself and the attributes of the activity or the person that I loved. How can I try to manifest those in, uh, in, in different activities? Yeah. For, for athletes, coaching is a wonderful transition. So sure. lo lots of great athletes end up coaching when they retire. And many of them go through periods of depression before they come out and coach. So hopefully like this book and these conversations can help people either minimize that period of depression or eliminate it altogether. Um, so with parenting, volunteering is great. So empty nesters, again, really hard, really sad. Start volunteering at schools. Uh, they start to feel better. Um, but being kind to yourself is really important. Like, yep, like it's okay to be sad. It's really, really hard to give something your all and to love it and then to not have it. Yeah. I was just thinking when you said empty nesters, I was like, go volunteer for Big Brothers Big Sisters. <laughs> yeah. There's um, so many great organizations. Yeah. For and sure. it's gonna be different. Like it's never the same as your kid. You know, maybe your maybe your mom will find another pursuit. Maybe it will be something physical, maybe not. But even if it is physical, let's say that she falls in love with swimming. Swimming's not the same as running. Like it's gonna be different and you can't expect it to be the same. You want it to be close enough. Um, or it can be totally different. But maybe the reason that your mom loved running had less to do with running and more to do with the community, the ability to get better and see measurable gains. But you can get that in a lot of things. You can get that in bridge. Yeah. You know? So, like, it's, it's being really particular about, like, well, what is it about this thing that made me tick? And then how can I try to manifest it elsewhere? Yeah. All right. Let's address, before we do the end of the podcast questions, I want to address a question that you have wrote about before. And I just, I think it's an interesting topic for runners because runners are very much, um, obsessed with their watches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I like my watch for my data and all that stuff too. And I like to be able to see what pace I'm running, but oftentimes I, I tell people, you know, like if you're going to go do a tempo run, like you need to run I call it a seven out of 10 effort. Like you just kind of need to be all in, but not like full out, like going crazy. And you, you need to kind of be able to sense what that feels like. And if, if your goal is to run a seven minute mile on those tempo miles, well, guess what? Like that might actually be a seven, 10 mile for you. It's how you feel and what that effort you're putting forth is. So can you kind of talk to everybody how, about how, um, I mean, I would say we like lost the freedom in running when we became glued to our watches and our paces. Yeah. I mean, I, you, you said it better than I could. So what I'll say is like, listen to Lindsay, especially if she's your coach, really <laughs> make sure that you listen to her. Um, no, you're hundred percent right. Like in that seven minute 
a seven minute thing. Like if you didn't sleep well the night before, then seven times where your body needs to be to get the same response. Uh, or if you slept great and you had a bunch of pizza the night before and you're just super like energized, maybe it's 650. So what happens is when you're glued to the watch, if you see 710, you try to speed up and get to seven and you get injured or you see 650 and you freak out and slow down instead of having a breakthrough workout, you're back at seven. Um, so it's just like, yeah, it's, I mean, you said it, it's releasing from it and it's going to feel angst provoking at first because you're so used to having this thing that is like there to guide you. Um, and partially it's angst provoking because you could fail. Like that 710 is not seven. Mm. So it, it, it might feel a little bit worse if you're so accustomed to metrics, metrics, metrics. But if you slowly over time transition to, this is like exactly what you said. This is what a tempo run feels like. And some days it might be 650 that feels that way. And some days it's 710 and you just have to trust your, your sense um, that, 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 that that is what's best for your progress. Um, I like to think in frameworks, as I'm, as I'm sure you can tell by this conversation. So <laughs> a, real helpful frame, a real helpful framework for that is what's called the four stages of competence or the four stages of mastery. And the first stage is what's called unconscious incompetence. So this is when you don't know what you're doing and you don't know that you don't know. So you're just totally messing up. And at this stage, oh, nothing can help you. Like you need to read some books and get a coach. Then the second stage is conscious incompetence. So this is when you're doing it wrong, but at least that you know that you're doing it wrong. So this is a beginner that kind of is starting to realize like, yikes, I've been training wrong, but now I'm aware that I'm doing it wrong. Then the third stage is conscious competence. And this is when you're doing it right, but it requires a lot of effort and thinking to do it right. And this is when watches can be great because like, that's exactly what it is, right? You're looking down at your watch to check your pace and you're kind of triangulating with how your body feels. And, and you have these, these um, it's almost like bumpers at a bowling alley to keep you on, on track. But the fourth stage, which is really where peak performance or peak workouts happen is unconscious competence. And that's when you're doing it right without even thinking about it. You're going completely by feel. So a watch is a tool like you were saying, and there's definitely a place for it, what can be real helpful is to reflect where in that ladder you are. And if you've been stuck at the conscious competence spot for a while, so you've been using your watch to do well, or you've been trying really hard to, to, to hit a certain pace, it might be time to experiment with moving to the next phase, which is taking off the watch and like and trying, I don't mean physically trying. I mean, like, the, and as I say this, I'm squinting my eyes. Like, the mental effort it takes to, like, oh, I must run seven minutes for a tempo run. Just release from all that and be like, this is, like, I'm going to run what feels like a tempo run. Um, a great way to do that is to put a piece of masking tape over your watch because you can still get the data after. Uh, and if you really are, are coming from a place of obsessiveness about checking your splits all the time, I would recommend putting masking tape over your watch and not taking it off for two weeks. Because what you don't want to do is take it off after that first run and see that you were like way off the mark mm -hmm. and freak out. Mm -hmm. But after two weeks, then what you'll probably see is none of your runs are going to be exactly at the pace you thought, but they'll be scattered around that pace, which to me is actually a sign of really good training because then you're accounting for how you slept the night before or if you ate well or if you didn't eat well or other stress going on in your life. Yeah. You know, I actually, I ran 
my there's a caveat to this because my husband ran with me and I kind of knew he would wouldn't let me go too far one direction or the next but I ran my last marathon without a watch and I wow. yeah and I Somehow I have my what data. What was that like for you? Yeah, I can't remember what I did with the watch because I, I definitely have the data. I don't know if my husband wore my watch for me or what because we ran the whole thing together. But um, I liked it because I could just like really, truly just run how I felt was appropriate for the mile I was in and like what my body was telling me I was capable of. Um you know, is it is a little bit scary because you're like, oh, that felt a little bit fast. Did I just run a 650 mile or was it a 715? And did 715 feel fast? You know, you can kind of overthink things, but I think it freed me up to run a smarter marathon. And I mean, you do see clocks on the course, so you can kind of. It's it's better though to see like where the total time is when you hit 10k. Like, oh, okay, well, ballpark. I'm probably within like you know 10 seconds of of this average pace so far. So you know you're not like out there doing it completely blindly. And I think it I think it gives you the opportunity to, like you said, to have a breakthrough because maybe some of those miles were super fast, but like, I felt like that's what was right at the time. And, and that takes experience too. I mean, you shouldn't do that on your second marathon because you will feel good at mile eight, no matter what, you know? Um, well likely, uh, but yeah, right. I think it freed me up, you know, and I, I would recommend people try it. I mean, why not? Yeah. And in, in the trap of the watch is there's a really windy day and you look down at the watch and you feel like you have to hit a certain pace or even a certain heart rate. It's really hard to hit a steady heart rate during windy days because like when the wind's against you, it, you're going to go nuts. And when the wind's with you, it's going to be really hard to stimulate your heart rate. So okay. there's no, there's no metric on a watch that's helpful on a really windy day. All right. We got six minutes. Let's, let's get to the end of the podcast questions. I just looked up at two fifty four. All right. Let's do it. It's a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. All right. What's uh, one thing personally or professionally you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? Uh, one thing personally or professionally I'd like to do that I haven't done yet. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I mean, eventually I'd like to write a book on my own. I've loved writing with Steve, uh, but I think that there are some things that feel like really intimate and personal and I'm not sure when the time will be. Um, but, but, but I'd like to write a book on my own. Yeah. What is one accomplishment you're most proud of? Well, this is my son just turned one. <laughs> um, so we made it. That, that feels really relevant right now. You did it. Is he sleeping through the night? That's the question. Most nights. I understand. Just so you know, it doesn't change. There's, it's always going to be most nights. <laughs> Even <laughs> when he's six, he might be on a floor bed in your room, which is what's happening in my life right now. Oh, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> floor bed is better than your own bed, though. Like your, <laughs> him being in your bed. Yeah. Um, if you could have coffee or cocktail with someone fun, motivating, or inspiring, who would it be? Uh, I think it would be Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a um, Vietnamese Zen master. Okay. Uh, what's the best, most recent book you've read? Uh, I read so many good books. Um, so there's a book called There, There by someone named Tommy Orange. It's a novel. Uh, it's just beautifully written. Another novel is called The Great Believers by Rebecca Mackay. Uh, also beautifully written. I just started reading Mary Oliver, came to her way too late. She recently passed away. Uh, her compilation of poems called Devotions is beautiful. Um, 
And then there's a book called The Craving Mind by Judson Brewer, uh, which is somewhat similar to the passion paradox around how our brains have evolved to crave and what we can do about that. Does your wife like to read and write? So my wife, uh, she listens to tons of books. Okay. She spent six and a half years as a corporate attorney and basically like could not read because she was reading mm. all day for her job. So she switched mm. to listening. Um, but yeah, she, she listens to a lot of books. All right. If you had one message to send to the world, what would it be? Oh, this is such a hard question. I think it's just be, to be kind to yourself. Um, try not to judge yourself. Like, it's really, really hard to be a human in the 21st century. And um, especially writing in a genre that a lot of people would call self-help. Um, it's really easy to think that there's always something that you could be doing better mm. or that there's something wrong. And that's true for most people. But at the same time, it's true that like good enough is almost always good enough. And like you can try to get better or correct what you're doing wrong while still loving yourself and being okay with where you are. Um, and that can be really freeing. I know it's freeing for me to remind myself of that often. Because uh, sometimes, again, this pusher temperament, the drive to get better, 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 uh, it kind of crowds out. Like most people, you're doing the best that you can. That's a lot to be proud of. That's good. Yeah. Uh, people are into this, like, what's your word of the year? And, uh, well, in January, people were talking about it. And one of my friends, her her word was, like, content. Like, I don't want to try, I don't want to try to, like, push, push, push this year. I, like, I literally just want to be content right where I am. And I think that that's a really healthy outlook. And it, not always, but, like, at times, like, it's okay to not push in your career. It's okay to not push in your running. Like, it's okay to just be content with how things are. Yeah, I would say that if your friend achieves that, tell her to give me a call because I, right? I want to learn. Like I would almost say that if you're feeling content, I wouldn't do anything different. Don't do anything like, different. Right. That's a great way to feel. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, Brad, I'm so excited for your book. And um, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. All this. I know you've spent hours upon hours of researching to make this this book and your last book with Steve as, you know, such a good resource for runners and entrepreneurs and athletes and, and all of the above. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Lindsay. I really enjoyed this, um, this conversation. Congratulations to making it to one with your son. <laughs> I know. I'll say one last thing before we cut out. Sure. Um, and it's funny, my agent and Steve are going to probably kill me. So it's, okay. it's a great, it's a great book. I'm super proud of it. Read it, read it, read it. Um, and the first book I wrote, everyone's like, writing a book is like having a baby out in the world. And I wrote the book and it felt like that. In this book, it's like, nope, I wrote a book. It's a good book, but <laughs> there's nothing like that. Like, it doesn't compare. <laughs> um, so that's just really funny how talk about a perspective changer. Yeah, because you did book, baby, book, right? Yeah, and the first book felt like a baby, and then it actually had a baby, and I'm like, nothing in the world feels like a baby. No, um, no, no, no. That's <laughs> yeah. so funny. Yeah. All right. Oh, that's that's all I got. All right. Thanks, Brad. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Lindsay. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening today. Thank you, Brad, for the insightful, fun conversation. Head over to my Instagram, lindsayhine626, to enter to win Brad's book, The Passion Paradox. I hope that you guys will consider coming to Indy and running the One America 500 Festival Mini Marathon with me in May. 
It's Saturday, May 4th. So many people are coming into town for it, and we're just going to have a blast all weekend. I told Glenn he is on total kid duty that weekend because I got lots of fun stuff to do with my running friends. Uh, And there will be a live show that Saturday as well. I haven't announced the guest yet, but we'll be doing that soon. Regardless of that, though, it's going to be a great, fun weekend. Use that code ANOTHER19. So if you want to register for the race, go to ndmini.com slash register and use my code ANOTHER19 to get $7 off your entry fee. Thank you to our sponsors today for making this show possible. If you guys go to mercurymile.com, you can use the code ANOTHER19 to get $10 off your stylist fee. And I hope you'll check out the Jaybird Sport Run XT True Wireless Headphones. Use that code ANOTHER to get 20% off your order. That's a big percentage for a product like that, 20%. We've got additional content for you over on my Patreon page. An extra 15 minutes with Kara Goucher. That episode is coming out next Friday. And I just recorded a 35-minute episode with Janae Barron, where she told us all about her most recent 50-mile race. That's patreon.com slash lindsayhine to support the show and get access to all kinds of great bonus episodes over there. And I want to give a shout out to my newest Patreon supporter, Sharon Graham. Thanks, Sharon. I really appreciate you supporting the show over there. It means the world to me. All right, guys, find me on social media. Connect with me there. I love to get to know the listeners of the show on all the other platforms. So links to all my social media will be in the show notes, lindsayhine.com, along with everything else Brad and I talked about including all the books he recommended, as well as the links to our sponsor info. Thanks so much for listening today. Have a great Friday. Have a wonderful rest of the weekend. And as always, I'll see you next Friday.